Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Stairway to Danger by John Blaine. Volume 2 Chapter 3 Strange Tracks Rick awoke with his mother's voice in his ears. For a moment he lay still. Then he realized she was calling him. He jumped out of bed and ran to the door. Yeah, Mom? Telephone, Rick. It's Captain Douglas. Rick didn't wait to dress. He ran downstairs in his pajamas and hurried into the library. There was a phone upstairs in his parents' room, but he wasn't sure his father was up yet. His voice was still thick with sleep as he answered. What is it, Captain? We have a lead, the state police officer replied. Is much, except that it gives a direction. One of my cars picked up a man who claims to have seen a maroon sedan heading south. He said the car was going so fast it hit only the high spots in the road. But we covered the southern area like a blanket, Rick objected. I know you did. We have to consider the timing, Rick. You got to the intersection before the car could possibly have made it, and then worked north. I figure the car could have made about five-eighths of the distance from Whiteside to the intersection at the same time, if it really traveled. We'd better assume it turned off somewhere and never got to the intersection. In other words, the car is still somewhere in the area. Couldn't it have gotten out during the night? Rick asked. Not a chance, Captain Douglas replied definitely. I didn't remember to tell you this last night, but we asked for help from the Civil Defense Auxiliary Police in our search for Soapy Strayed. They set up roadblocks on every road out of the area about the time you and Gus got back. They'll be on duty until we get strayed. And we've given them a description of the hit-and-run car, too, so they can watch for it as well as Soapy. Rick knew New Jersey had a good civil defense force. He was glad the state police had asked for their cooperation. How do we dig this car out? he asked. Mainly by keeping your eyes open, Captain Douglas said. You take another swing over the southern area this morning? We'll get going as soon as I can dress and have breakfast, Rick agreed. There'll be plenty of time before we have to go to work. Good. Drop a message like I told you yesterday if you see anything. Then phone me when you land. Will do, Rick said. How's the search for the gangster coming anyway? No luck. So far as we know, he hasn't crossed into our state. New York police think he may have headed north to the border. Well, I hope you get him. Rick said. He rang off and ran upstairs to shower and get into his clothes. A short time later, he paused on the way downstairs and knocked on Barbie's door. Come in, Barbie said. He pushed open the door and walked in. Barbie was propped up in bed with a breakfast tray in her lap. She had regained her color. 
Wow, what luxury, Rick exclaimed. Breakfast in bed? How long does this go on for? Barbie smiled. If it wasn't extra work for Mom, I'd just as soon have it go on indefinitely. But I'll be all right by tomorrow, Rick. Will they catch that car? Captain Douglas says so, Rick told her about the phone call. We'll keep trying, he finished. If the car's in the area, we'll get it. Barbie frowned. I know you and Scotty, she stated. Let the police do it, Rick. Anybody who would smash another car and keep on going is dangerous. You and Scotty can help find the car, but don't try to do anything else about it. Please. We probably won't get the chance, Rick said evasively. He didn't want to make any promises. Listen, sis, I gotta run. We'll see you after work tonight. Your leg hurt much? Not much, Barbie said. It was pretty bad yesterday, but it isn't hurting so much this morning. I'm fine, Rick. He gave her a comradely wink. Make the most of it, sis. An opportunity to be the center of attraction doesn't come very often. Barbie threw a muffin at him. He fielded it and tossed it back. Temper, temper, he cautioned. Invalids don't throw muffins. This one does, Barbie said. Go away. But she couldn't help smiling. Rick found Scotty already eating breakfast in the big dining room. Mrs. Brandt joined them for coffee. The others have gone to work, Mrs. Brandt told them. Your father took them to the Whiteside Landing a little while ago. He should be back at any moment. Are you going to start working today? Yeah, Mom, after we take another look for that hit-and-run car, Rick said. The boys finished breakfast quickly, then went out to the Cub. Since the gas supply was low, it was necessary to go to Whiteside Airport first for a fill-up. Gus, the airport manager, speculated on the maroon car's location as he hosed gasoline into the tank. Must be close by. Didn't get out of my area. I stayed in the air until I saw the civil defense cops setting up roadblocks. Douglas said he radioed his patrol car up north, and they kept the highway bottled like a cork. You'll find it somewhere around Seaford. I'll bet on it. I hope you win, Scotty said grimly. I want to widen my circle of friendship. I want to meet the guy who drives this maroon sedan. Gus nodded soberly. When you do, I'll lend you a heavy wrench. Airborne once again, Rick headed south as he had the day before. At the intersection, he and Scotty saw the roadblocks set up by the Simple Defense Police. They were stopping each car as it approached the intersection from the short road, and they were giving the cars a careful going over before permitting them to continue. Rick spoke his satisfaction. Straight in that hit-and-run driver won't get past those guys. Unless they've already managed it, Scotty added. Let's head north. Take your time and keep low. I'll keep my eyes peeled. They covered the area practically a yard at a time, now and then swooping low for a closer look at something. Once they did find a maroon car, it was in a garage at Jarek's Crossing. The garage doors were open, and Rick flew so low his wheels touched the topmost branch of a tree. The car was a convertible, though, and the wrong make. Nowhere else from the intersection to Whiteside did they even see a suspicion of a maroon car. The hit-and-run car had vanished from sight. If it's in the area, it's undercover, Scotty said. No use beating the air. Might as well go to work. Rick nodded. Scotty was right. He banked around and headed for the project. 
In a short time, the curving structure of the roller coaster was in sight, and then the amusement park itself. I'm going to buzz the field, Rick said. Take a long look for any obstructions. He lost altitude rapidly, pulling out at 100 feet. As they flashed over the level stretch where they could land between the amusement park and the road, he stood the plane up on a wing to give Scotty a better look. Past the strip, he leveled off and gained altitude. He cast a look at Scotty. What do you think? Is it okay? Scotty had a thoughtful expression on his face. Do it again. Stay a little higher and slower. All right. Rick banked around and made another run. See anything? Yeah, I saw a track in the grass where a car has gone in through the fence. Rick's pulse quickened. I want to look at that amusement park then. Let's ride the roller coaster. Yeah, let's, Scotty agreed. Rick circled over the amusement park, keeping barely above the top of the roller coaster. Both he and Scotty scanned the ground below. There was no sign of life. The buildings were shabby, either unpainted or with peeling paint. Grass had sprung up everywhere. Even the midway was overgrown. But here and there were stretches of blacktop road running between the buildings. That is mighty queer, Scotty said. Why should they pave inside and not pave the main entrance? The main entrance isn't on the shore road, Rick explained. I'll show you. He made another swing around over the amusement park. On its north side was a paved roadway leading from the shore road to a huge gate. There's the main entrance. They put it there so people could find parking in that big field across the way. The parking field would have been a better landing place except for posts that marked off the parking areas. There must be some kind of gate on the shore road side, Scotty objected. The car wouldn't go up to the fence, stop, and back out again. Of course not, Rick agreed. There's probably a service gate of some kind, but the best way to tell is to land and see. We have to land anyway if we're going to go to work. He swung wide and gauged his altitude distance and then cut the throttle. The nose dropped into the glide position. Keep a sharp eye out, he warned. Let's not pile up on an old bucket or something. His father had examined the field, but someone could have tossed junk there in the meantime. The cub lost altitude rapidly, dropping low over the electric wires that served the amusement park. It sped down the grassy field and then sold out. Rick hauled the wheel back into his lap and felt the wheels touch the grass. The plane settled and slowed rapidly. In a moment, Rick locked the brakes and the boys got out. Around the corner of the amusement park fence, they could see the project building. But before walking to it, they went back to where Scotty had seen the automobile tracks in the grass. The grass was a good ten inches high. There was no doubt that a car had passed over it, crushing it down. The boys looked at each other without speaking. No words were necessary because they were both thinking the same thing. They walked down the twin rows of crushed grass to the high board fence that surrounded the amusement park. The rows ended at a gate. It was obviously not a public gate, since no paved road led to it. Probably it had been used to bring in heavy equipment, shortening the distance from the main highway. First we go see Dr. Winston, Rick said. Then what? Rick grinned at Scotty, but there was no mirth in his grin. Then we figure out a way to get inside this fence. 
A car went in all right, but no car came out. At least not this way. So it's still in there. Probably. And maybe, just maybe, it's a maroon sedan. We'll find it, Scotty said. The project building was a box-like affair, two stories high. The first floor was all one big room. Benches had been improvised at one end, and packing cases stood on their sides in tiers to form shelves. There were tables made by putting planks across sawhorses. The place was so cluttered, Rick wondered how anyone could possibly find anything. In the midst of this clutter, Dr. Parnell Winston and Dr. Julius Weiss were bent over a stack of wiring diagrams. At the benches were several technicians who had been hired for the project. The air was heavy with the typical odors of an electronics laboratory, mostly burning insulation and the acrid smoke of soldering. At one end of the big room, in front of a wide, flimsy door, stood what appeared to be a tractor. It had caterpillar treads and a powerful engine. But there were no shift levers, no steering wheel, and no place for a man to sit. Against the wall nearby was a huge bulldozer blade. Rick and Scotty walked through the maze of cases and parts to where Winston and Weiss were poring over the diagrams. Not wanting to interrupt, they stood waiting. Parnell Winston was a powerfully built six-footer, with a heavy thatch of thick black hair and amazingly bushy eyebrows. His face was ruddy. He was 40, but looked 10 years younger. Rick had seen him only a few times and then briefly, but he liked what little he had seen of the new scientist. Julius Weiss, an old friend, was a much older man. He was small and slight and stooped with thinning hair. He was widely known as a mathematician as well as a leading scientist in the electronics field. I think we'd better redesign the circuit, Winston said. There's a space problem, but we can overcome it by using transistors instead of tubes. I prefer transistors for a job of this sort anyway. They won't break on impact. Julius Weiss agreed. Suppose you check on the progress of the memory circuit then, and I'll get to work on this. He looked up and saw the boys. Well, did you find the car? No, sir, Rick answered. How'd you know we were looking for it? Weiss smiled. Behold the younger generation, Winston. It appears they have never heard of a communications device called a telephone. Your father called to explain that you'd be late, Winston explained. Welcome to the project. Ready to buckle down? We will be, Scotty said. But there's something we want to do first. He told the scientists about the track into the amusement park. Winston shook his head. I doubt you'll find what you're looking for, but you can go ahead and try. We'll discuss your work when you get back. We can't overlook any possibilities, sir. This won't take long. We'll find a loose board in the fence, or we'll make one. Expect us back in fifteen minutes. Weiss motioned to a workbench. You'll find a pinch bar over there in case you have to pry a bit. He turned back to his diagrams. Let's go, Rick said. Scotty was already on his way to the bench. He picked up the bar and followed Rick into the open. The fence ran along the edge of the project driveway. They inspected it for loose boards and found none. Scotty selected a wide one and grinned at Rick. Here we go, house breaking. He inserted the end of the bar and pried. 
Nails protested. Scotty put on a little more leverage and the bottom of the board came loose. Scotty tossed the pinch bar to the grass next to the project building door. After you, he said politely. If we find what we're looking for, you may wish you kept that pry bar, Rick told him. He squeezed through the opening and into the amusement park. Chapter 4 The Amusement Park Rick surveyed the amusement park carefully, his quick eyes taking in the circular platform of the Caterpillar ride and the flat wooden bowl of the whip. The machinery had long ago been removed from both. He saw wooden platforms where barkers had once touted various rides which had been removed bodily, leaving no clue as to their type. There were booths which had housed spun candy, lemonade, frozen custard, and hot dog concessions, and low buildings where he remembered seeing a rifle range, a quoit game, and other devices for removing money from customers. He pointed to the biggest building. That used to be the fun house, he told Scotty. He kept his voice low. That long building with the queer shape was the water ride. Scotty's voice was low, too. What's a fun house? Rick looked at his pal with amazement. Haven't you ever been to an amusement park? Nope. Been to carnivals and circuses, but there was never a fun house. Well, I guess they only have them in permanent places, Rick agreed. There's a whole collection of stuff inside. This one had a giant shoot the chutes a big barrel you could walk through while it turned, a big turntable that spun people off, those wavy mirrors that make you look fat or skinny, and a flight of stairs that would straighten out when you climbed them. Sounds like a good way to break your neck, Scotty remarked. He too was examining every visible inch of the amusement park. We better go to the spot in the fence where the car came in. He led the way. Nobody broke their neck because there were always warning signs. Anyway, only kids and young people usually tried to climb the stairs and shoot the chutes. It was fun. There were men to catch anyone who slipped. Rick kept close to the fence, Scotty behind him. They reached the corner and turned. Rick watched for a track in the grass and for signs of a gate. But the grass was so high that they didn't see the track until they were almost upon it. The gate was a hinged section of the fence, secured by a spring-bolt type of lock. Scotty examined the lock and then tried it. This is fairly new, he commented. Looks like the park is occupied. Rick nodded. He had a sort of creepy feeling as though they were being watched. I wonder where the occupants are. One of those buildings, Scotty said. But which one? They sighted along the path in the grass, but it joined a paved road. I guess we'll just have to explore. Rick's eye caught a glimpse of twisted grass a little distance away. He walked over and studied the ground. There was no doubt about it. A single path led away from the fence toward the paved road. It must be a footpath, he mused. Where does it come from? Scotty was already tracing the path back to the fence. Look here he said softly. He pushed it aboard and it swung smoothly away from the fence. He released it and it swung back again. Rick looked upward and saw a hinge where the board had been nailed to the upper fence rail. We must be on the wrong track. This isn't a one-time deal. Whoever came in here must come in here 
often. You don't hinge a section of the fence just to sneak in once or twice. Scotty scratched his head. Now that you mention it, why do you put a hinge on a board at all when there's a perfectly good gate a few feet away? That stopped Rick. He didn't know. Now that you mention it, I can't see any reason for doing that. Scotty's studying the amusement park buildings. While we're mentioning things, why use this section of the fence anyway if there's a main entrance? Well, there's only one way to find out. Rick pointed across the grounds to where the towers of the main gate could be seen under the roller coaster. Let's go take a look. They walked diagonally across the grounds toward the gate. It was broad daylight, and there was no point in trying to conceal their presence. If anybody challenged them, they would simply say they were curious about the old amusement park. The reason for using the highway side gate was clear before they even reached the main gate. It was not only barred with a piece of 4 by 8 timber, but it was nailed shut. The ticket houses through which pedestrians had once poured were boarded up. Rick searched his head for a clue to the reason for the hinged board. He said aloud, The lock of the gate isn't an old one. Besides, anyone with time enough to put a hinge on a board could either change the gate lock or break it. Scotty grinned. Well, now we got a real mystery to solve. The clue of the squeaky hinge, Rick agreed. Except it didn't squeak. Look, we have to assume it's the same guy or guys using both the gate and the board. What's the board got that the gate hasn't? Scotty rubbed his chin. Next question? I don't know the answer to that one. They were under the roller coaster now. Scotty pushed on an upright. It creaked a little. Not very steady, Rick observed. They must have termites. He traced the path of the coaster with his eyes. It rose into the air, then dipped sharply to the roof of the funhouse. He recalled that an upper room had been a labyrinth, pitch black inside. It had taken a good five minutes to find one's way in the darkness, and once or twice during that time the roller coaster had passed overhead, filling the room with a terrible thundering noise. Very scary stuff until you'd been through it a couple of times. The funhouse is nearest. Let's go give it a try, he said. He led the way, pondering meanwhile about the hinged board and the gate. He speculated for a moment, and then suggested, Suppose the hinged board was fixed first. Then the gate was added later in order to let a car through. Scotty disposed of that theory. The hinges on the gate are a lot older than the hinge on the fence. That's not even rusted very much. The gate hinges are thick with rust. Rick gnawed at the problem the way Dismal, the Spindrift Island pup, gnawed at a bone. He thought of many things and rejected them in the same instant. I'd better stop thinking about this, he muttered. The more I think, the more confused I get. Scotty chuckled softly. Leave it in the oven for a while. Maybe it'll turn into a pie all by itself. The method usually worked pretty well for Rick. If he stopped worrying about a problem, the solution often came unbidden while he was thinking about something else. He shifted his attention to the side of the funhouse. There was a painted clown that covered the entire wall with the words Funhouse in crooked letters across his pointed cap. 
Once the clown had been gay with red colors, but the paint was peeling and one eye was entirely missing. The remaining eye was forlorn and a little sad. I wonder why the place went out of business, Scotty asked. It ran down the same time the summer residents stopped coming to Seaford, Rick explained. They kept it open for a few years, hoping to draw people from Newark and the other big cities, but it's too much of a drive for an evening's fun. Then he added, Besides, I don't think people care much for amusement parks anymore. I've heard of two or three closing down recently. They reached the building, and Rick put his ear to a bare section of board and listened. There was no sound inside. All quiet, he said in a low voice. Let's try the front. They walked to the front of the building, making as little noise as possible. The main doors were closed, locked with a heavy padlock. Rick tried the door into the teller's booth, and it gave slightly. He cast a quick look at Scotty and then pushed a little harder. The door creaked complainingly. In a moment, the door was open far enough to slip through. Rick stepped into the booth and looked around. He guessed that the door through which he had come was only a convenience, not often used while the funhouse was in operation. Usually such booths were reached from inside the building, so there had to be another door. It took him a moment to find it because it was only a half door that opened under a little counter. There was no knob. He pushed it and it gave way. Scotty had stepped into the booth behind him. He grunted with satisfaction as Rick found the door under the counter. Go ahead. I'm right behind you. Okay. Rick's heart beat faster as he crouched down and swung the door wide. Bending low, he went in and straightened up in the funhouse itself now. Scotty joined him and they stood in silence looking the place over. To their right, the giant slide rose from the floor to a sort of gallery. Rick remembered shooting the chute down the slide. It gleamed dully under a coat of preservative, probably a plastic spray. Next to the slide was the stairway to the gallery. Beside the stairway was a huge door. The door led into a room filled with mirrors, he recalled. They were the kind of mirrors that gave a distorted view, making you look twisted, fat, or skinny, or like weird twins. To the left of the doorway was another stairway. There had been a sign at the bottom warning that the stairway was a trick giant slide, but the sign was now gone. The big barrel was somewhere in the dimness to the right of the main entrance. The centripetal dish that spun people off as it whirled, was back under the trick stairs. What's upstairs? Scotty asked in a whisper. A labyrinth room, Rick replied. Maybe other rooms too, but I don't remember them. Are we going to go search? There didn't seem to be anyone in the building. I don't think there's much use. There's no place here to drive a car in. Well, let's take a look anyway. There'd be room for ten cars behind those stairs and the slide. Rick started to say that the mirror room was behind the stairs and then realized that one room couldn't take up all the space. There had to be others. He walked across the dusty floor to the entrance of the mirror rooms and looked in. There was very little light. The main room was bright enough because windows were set high in the walls, but in this inner room there were no windows at all. He wished for a flashlight. The mirrors had been removed. He could see in the dim light that the walls were bare. I see a door, Scotty whispered. He pointed to the rear of the room. 
Rick made out the outline of a door and moved toward it. Scotty was there first, however. He put his ear to the door and listened, and then whispered, No noise. I'm going to try it. He turned the knob slowly, then pulled on the door. It opened with only a faint creak of rusty hinges. Scotty peered through. In a second, he was at Rick's side, lips pressed against his ear. There's a car in there, he said excitedly. Rick felt a shiver run down his spine. He stepped forward to see for himself. His nostrils twitched. There was an acrid, familiar smell in the air, but he couldn't place it. He peered into the dimness and saw a car. It was a sedan, and it was black. There was no doubt of the color because a vagrant ray of sunlight came through a crack somewhere in the room beyond and fell across the car's hood. It was a car, but not the right one. Scotty sneezed. Instantly, feet hit the floor somewhere on the other side of the wall, out of range of the door. A man's voice called, Who's there? Rick froze, then realized there was no use in trying to run or take cover. Before they could get out of the park, the man would get a good look at them. He decided on boldness. Where are you? he called. We didn't know there was anyone here. He stepped through the door. Feet pounded on the boards of the outer room. There was a moment of silence, and then footsteps ran toward them. In a second, Rick was face to face with the occupant of the funhouse. He was dressed in trousers and sweatshirt, and his hair was tousled. His thin face needed a shave. A white streak across his chin indicated that an old injury had left a scar. What's your kids doing in here? he asked in a rough manner. Come out, so's I can get a look at you. The boy stepped forward a little, hesitantly. The man cast a look over his shoulder and then changed his mind. He crowded forward, forcing them back. Get in the other room. I want to see what you look like. Scotty led the way into the main room. The man looked them over. This here's private property. What do you want? What you after? We work next door, Rick said. He added placatingly, sir. Scotty spoke up. We thought it might be fun to look in here. We didn't know anybody was around. All right, so you didn't know anyone was here. Now you know, so get out. And don't come back. I'm the caretaker, see? I got a job, and it's keeping people out of here, see? Now go back where you came from. Beat it, see? I catch you in here again, and I'll bumper your skulls together. Then I'll call the cops and turn you in for trespassing. This time I'm letting you off. Now get going, see? Yes, sir, Rick agreed. His glance warned Scotty not to make any trouble. We're sorry. We didn't mean any harm. Yeah, the caretaker said. Now get going. They did so, and back the way they had come. As they hurried toward the project, they heard the caretaker moving around the booth, probably locking up. Rick, I'm really sorry I sneezed, Scotty groaned, but I couldn't help it. Banana oil always makes me sneeze. Rick stopped dead in his tracks and stared at his pal, eyes wide. Banana oil? Of course, Scotty, that car. And then Scotty got it, too. You're right, they used banana oil in automobile lacquer. That car must have been repainted. And only a few hours ago, otherwise... We wouldn't have smelled the stuff. Rick increased his stride. They weren't done with the amusement park, not by a long shot, 
Repainting a car in the back of the funhouse could only mean that there was some reason for changing its color. Covering maroon paint with black was as good a reason as any, especially if the maroon paint had been scraped in a hit-and-run accident. I wonder who the other guy was, Scotty asked. What other guy? Rick had only seen the caretaker. There were two of them, Scotty said. Remember how the board sounded after I sneezed? There were footsteps of two men. Then there was a little delay. I think that was when the second man got undercover somewhere so we couldn't see him. What's more, the caretaker told us to step forward. Then he looked over his shoulder and changed his mind. Someone else was in that room all right. It made sense. Now that Scotty had pointed out the caretaker's actions, it made a lot of sense. Rick nodded. And the second man didn't want to be seen either. We woke them up, Scotty guessed. We were quiet until I sneezed. They heard that and then started to investigate. Rick reached the board they had pried loose and stepped through it. Scotty close to his heels. Maybe we'd better put a hinge on it. We'll be going back in again, won't we? You bet we will, and not in broad daylight either. He turned and pushed the board into place. As he did so, Rick let out a yip. I got it, Scotty. I know why they hinged the board at the front fence. For a man on foot, that's easier and faster, especially if he doesn't want anyone to see him going into the park. They shook hands solemnly. That's it, Scotty agreed. Quickest way would be for a car to drop a man off right at the fence. He could be inside in a matter of seconds, and if he took the precaution of not getting out of the car until the highway was clear, no one would ever know, even if he went in and out by daylight. And that, Rick concluded, means that our friend is not a caretaker after all, and that he has no more business in there than we have. <laughs>